Coming up on today's show. The very next day, I got a call from a casting agent who happened to have been in the audience and she wanted us to audition for a film. Whoa. <laughs> and that was such a validation of like, oh, I'm on the right path. You know, I'm on a good path. Welcome to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Do please stay connected. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Anything and everything to do with this podcast or the entertainment industry itself, I look forward to hearing from you. I say it all the time because I mean it. I honestly do. Please, please give me your feedback on this show. Yes, through email or through social media DMs. But honestly, I would love to actually talk with you by phone. I will tell you specifically what I'm referring to coming up. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles, my guest is a musician, filmmaker, writer, and podcaster. He was lead singer and auto harpist in a band called The Acres, which had a large following in Europe, Australia, and Latin America, and did a mix of bluegrass, hymns, and neo-folk. He still plays auto harp for guest appearances on albums, with his latest appearance being on an album by Omawen. His film, La Lucha, was an official selection in the Reading, Pennsylvania Mexican Film Festival, and he has published five memoirs with a sixth on the way. You've been hearing a song by the Acres called Grandma Joan. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Duncan McLeod. Hey, Bruce. Thanks. You bet, Duncan. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you making time. Of course. <laughs> it's good to have you on the show. You're wearing a lot of different hats as we hear so often in this new economy, as I've referred to it on so many episodes of this show. Mm -hmm. But before we start peeling back all those layers, let's start off by having you talk first about the song that was just playing called Grandma Joan. Okay. Well, Grandma Joan was um, my grandmother, and um, I just wanted to honor her with a waltz. So... I composed it. It's on an auto harp and auto harps are very limited. So it's really just a chord progression, but it sounds nice. And then uh, we had a producer who really liked sound effects. So you get a lot of rocking chairs and insects chirping. And um, it's a, it's just kind of a beautiful sound. It would be good as a soundtrack for a, a film that's set somewhere in the, I don't know, in Appalachia or something. And um, writing it was just as simple as playing the tune. I mean, there was really nothing to write down. So that's how I write music a lot of times is I just play around with chords until I have something I like. So you said that you wrote it by yourself or was that a co-write? This one I wrote by myself, just sitting in my kitchen in Hollywood. <laughs> okay, so that's actually the answer I was hoping to hear because when you talked about the producer who wanted to bring in all kinds of effects on it, Talk about that process, because here's 
something that you bring to the table that you have written and you already have a vision for it, and all of a sudden somebody wants to sprinkle in these different elements that you refer to. So obviously you were okay with it, but just for the casual listener who's not familiar with that type of process, just walk us through that because I would think that some composers, some songwriters could be offended and say, no, don't touch my song, leave it the way I did it, and maybe even storm out and find a different producer. <laughs> uh, no, I was just so grateful to have Tom Tuba. He was a fantastic producer. He was almost like another member of the band, and he did all kinds of really good auto-tuning of sorts, I think was probably what I was most grateful for, because at that time, my voice was, I was still finding my voice. I hadn't started singing with um, sort of like a choir that I sing with and some other things. So he really added to it and made it sound beautiful. And that's what I wanted. It wasn't, I wanted it to be the sound that I created. I'm not that kind of artist, I think. I'm very collaborative. So um, it was a great collaboration. Was this a case of bringing it to the band first and the producer second? Or was it, I just went right to the producer and he was kind of calling the shots? Well, I don't even know if other members of the band played on that one. So it wasn't as collaborative in that sense. It was just me and this producer. Well, he recorded me. I think other people were in the room, but he didn't use their tracks. He just took the auto harp and put it through a bunch of reverb and other things to make it sound eerie and beautiful. I remember my grandmother heard it and was just tickled. So mm. <laughs> he, I think he did a great job. I'm interested in this dynamic, though. Was the Acres, was it technically considered your band? Because if it wasn't, was it maybe more so that you were kind of the go-to songwriter and, and that's how you're able to write the song, bring it to the producer, and not have to bring it to the band first? Um, I guess when I say I didn't have to bring it to the band, we had been playing around, and I did bring it to the band in that sense. We had played it on stage before uh, we finally started recording. Okay. So it was already a familiar song, and it had a banjolele and uh, a stand-up bass accompaniment when we played on stage. But Tom really wanted to strip it down to just the essentials, and I thought that was fine. And uh, other people agreed. They had their own songs that they were championing. We all wrote songs. so. Okay, got it, got it. As much as I would typically start diving into all kinds of questions about a guest's musical background and projects after they talk about the song played during the opening, this time around I need to instead start out by asking about the troubled relationship that I understand you had with music, especially since we've just heard all about that song and the band and working with a producer. So enlighten us. Tell us about the troubled relationship that you had with music. All right. Well, it's kind of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, my father is a very, or well, he's no longer an, an accomplished folk musician, but he was. Um, he's struggling with Alzheimer's now. But when I was very young, he lived with us and he taught me all kinds of songs that my grandmother actually recorded. And I didn't even remember. And um, then he left. And when he left, music left. I didn't have the confidence of my own voice anymore. When I went to church and sang, people just stared at me like, who's that kid? What's that weird voice? Mm. Later, they told me that it was a beautiful voice, but they, I thought they were hating it. Mm. I just had no self-confidence when it came to music. Um, I, I lip-synced to Happy Birthday. I 
I stayed quiet for years. And then I got this auto harp. Um, I, I went to South Lake Tahoe, won some money. And on the way back, we stopped in Placerville. And there was an auto harp in the window of a pawn shop. And I just thought, I wonder if that was Sarah Carter's auto harp. She lived near there. It wasn't, but, you know, <laughs> it was a fantasy I had. So I said, <laughs> I'm going to buy it. And I bought it, but I had no idea how to play it. And I looked all around San Francisco where I was living at the time, and I could not find anybody who could teach me how to play it. Mm. So it just sat in a case for, I don't know, a few years. And then I moved to Hollywood, and I was walking down 3rd Street. I'd just gone to a, a tea room called Chado. And um, there was this store called Geisler Music, and it said, Lessons you know, in the window. And then there was an auto harp for sale. And I thought, oh, he must know how to play auto harp. So I went in and I said, can you teach me auto harp? And he said, no, but I can teach you music. Mm. And that was when I got started. And uh, he taught me how to strum and he taught me chord progressions and the circle of fifths and all kinds of other theories about music. And that was how I got started playing music. And I would bring songs in and I'd say, can you teach me how to play this Ramon song or you know, this, this song by whole or whatever. And he, he could, he could figure out the chords. This was before kind of just before the internet took off and you could find chords online. Mm. So I, I had to go to him and have him tell me what the chords were. Cause I didn't know anything at the time. Now I can pick them out and figure them out on my own. And then, uh, my friend Nettie, she got a banjo and she didn't know how to play it. So I sent her to Jim <laughs> Geisler and he taught her how to play the banjo And then we got together in my kitchen and that was the acres. Yeah. Tell us more about the, the, the acres because we heard the song and I was asking you some questions about the way things operated within the band, but just tell us a little bit more about the band itself. As I mentioned audience, you heard me say when I brought Duncan on that he was the lead singer and as you're hearing him saying the auto harpist so tell us more duncan about the acres well the two of us Nettie and i were both co-leads i would say and she had the more beautiful voice um, and she had a much larger circle of friends because she'd been living in la for a lot longer than me so the success of the band really hinged on her um, i was just a kind of a creative force that drove the band forward in a lot of different directions but mostly in the sort of neo-folk direction um, and turning a lot of songs that weren't folk into folk music like punk rock or uh, heavy metal and um, that was the dynamic and then we brought in a couple of other people a guy named MJ who I worked with at New Line Cinema and um, her eventual husband Morgan who was a stand-up bass player and then a, a guy who wanted to go by the name The Bucket um, he was uh, a cellist. And then uh, my then boyfriend, Norman, joined the band. Who He played pump organ. So none of the instruments were the traditional instruments of a rock band. Yeah. And they weren't even quite folk, but they really sounded good together on stage. And um, we, we played a lot of gigs around L.A. and got a lot of fans as a result. Okay, but back up because somewhere in there was the move from San Francisco to Hollywood. So I have two questions. One is, were you moving to Hollywood for music? And number two, regardless of what that answer is, were you doing music full-time? Was The Acres a full-time endeavor for you? 
two great questions. First answer is no, it wasn't for music. It was for film. I got a job at New Line Cinema. I was so excited. I was a film major in college and I thought, I am going to take the film world by storm. <laughs> but my job was in post-production accounting, which is pretty much a dead end. And I didn't take the film world by storm, but I, I met Nettie through New Line and Music took off, but it was not full-time. I wanted it to be full-time, but she didn't want to tour. So that was actually how the band eventually broke up because I was so frustrated. I wanted, I loved music so much. I wanted to do it all the time, but she didn't. So mm. that's, I mean, that happens in a lot of bands, I think. They go different directions. So. so was it a case of you didn't tour at all or you just did, but not to the extent that you would have liked we just toured in San Francisco one time, and then that was it. Uh, the rest of the time we played L.A. So then to what do you attribute having been able to get that following that I mentioned in the intro, Europe, Australia, Latin America? That was all through the CD that I was mentioning before. The song Grandma Joan comes off of the only CD that the Acres ever put out. And then Nettie and I did this weird campaign where we got this list of all the folk music stations and all the country music stations around the world and we sent them our CD. Whoa. We must have sent out a couple hundred CDs. Whoa. And then we got all this feedback. We got such beautiful feedback from people in different parts of the world saying, this is just the best song I've ever heard, or you guys are just, you're honest music. You're, we really were. I mean, we were stripped down, untrained. I mean, other than the little bit of music that, that Jim Geisler taught us, we had no formal training. And it really sounded that way <laughs> in a lot of our tracks. So people liked that because it felt, they said it felt honest. That was the word that came up a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, yet here you were getting feedback from all these CDs that you mailed out all over the U.S. and all over the world of people embracing it. And so it makes me wonder when Nettie didn't want to continue on, was there an effort? Was there a desire? Was, was there, I need to continue this and replace her? Or was it, well, if she's not going to be around, there's no reason to keep the acres together anymore? Um, the second one. Yeah. I felt without Nettie, there was no acres. I was Duncan acre. She was Nettie acre. Uh, Morgan was Morgan acre. He wanted to focus on his film career and he's won a couple of Academy awards since then. So, Whoa. uh, he, he's a documentary filmmaker who did the, he does a lot of music documentaries. He did one called, I think it was him that did 15 feet from stardom or something like that. It yeah. was about um, backup singers yeah. and he did the Mr. Rogers documentary that won an Academy award. So the breaking up of the band was the right thing to do for them. And it was for me too, because eventually I discovered writing. So, uh. um, which is my true passion now, although I still sing and I still perform music is just one of several ways that I express myself now. So before we move on, I have to ask, the band named The <laughs> Acres, where did that come from? I can't remember exactly, um, but I, I know that it was a play on words because it was about heartache and about land and being a farmer, kind of. There was a farm. It wasn't farmer. It was rural. We had a rural sound, even though we were living in this huge city. We just <laughs> were really, I think the Carter family was probably one of the biggest influences that made our music. We have two Carter family songs on our album. So if that tells you anything, we used to play Ring of Fire, which was originally the Carter family. I think Johnny Cash took it over. But, you know, there's a version where they sing it that's a little older, if I remember right. 
so that's that's how it came about. And then because it was like the Ramones, we decided that we would all take the last name Acre and we would be the Acres. <laughs> and it, that was reflected on our website, on our all of our you know promo materials that we sent out to the clubs to try to get gigs. And so um, cool. that's that was like that was our persona. So cool. <laughs> I mentioned in the intro that you did a guest appearance on an album by Omawen. You live in Los Angeles, and she's a British citizen. So how does an opportunity like that come along? Since the two of you don't even live in the same country. Well, we lived in San Francisco together in the '80s and '90s, and we had a lot of close collaborations. Not musical on my part. I did a lot of film loops, which are like. You take a Super 8 film and sort of splice it into a loop and play it. So I had flowers blowing in the breeze that I projected onto her while she did her music about flowers. And then I had fire and then, you know, I had a bunch of different loops that I would use. Um, so that was our one of our early collaborations. And we wrote a screenplay together uh, that didn't go anywhere. And... I just, you know, she was like, she helped me find my creative voice. And then, uh, so we've stayed in touch all, you know, all throughout our life, basically. But, you know, I have to imagine that with the auto harp being such a unique instrument, that it's kind of a case of, and putting this in the form of a question, by the way. Yeah. Once someone becomes aware of it, I have to imagine that more times than not, they're drawn to it. And it's easy for them to say, Duncan, I should get you to play on one of my songs. Yeah. I mean, now in the the modern world we live in, or the, really the postmodern world, with the internet and garage band and bouncing tracks, it's so easy to collaborate no matter where you are in the world. It wasn't like that when the Acres came out. Um, you, you would have to wait half an hour for a song to upload. <laughs> um, but people were doing it. I had friends. I was friends with a, a group of musicians back east that we all went to high school together they were called the magnetic fields and um, i would hear about them collaborating across uh you know continents and i was really impressed but i had no idea how they did it mm. and Oma sort of taught me how so that was my introduction to how music can be done remotely well right but my point is that in la and nashville and new york you could throw a stone and hit a guitar player or a drummer or a bass player and yet i think someone would say we should collaborate sometime and they go guitar players are a dime a dozen drummers are a dime a dozen but they see this thing called the auto harp and they go wow there's nobody walking down the street <laughs> that plays that so I, that's why i'm saying i would have to feel that there would be a lot more opportunities for you because it's just a matter of someone needs to become aware of it first and then they say this is really neat can you play on one of my projects that's a great point yes I'm aware that you're a publicist and I will say absolutely that I am not. And I don't advertise very well for my, <laughs> my auto harp. So uh. being on this program, I might as well say, Hey, out, if there's any musicians listening and you want an auto harp on your album, please consider me. Um, yeah. I'm cheap or free depending on what you're doing. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm happy to collaborate. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You say that when people ask you about influences, you distinguish them from music that you love. Tell me more about that. Okay, well, an influence is somebody whose music I could play on an auto harp. It's a very limited instrument in some ways. You can't do power chords. You can't really play solos It's it because you don't know what string you need to hit because you're hitting them all and you're playing chords, not really. And, you know, you can make it high or low by where you put your hand, but you can't 
pick out a tune on an auto harp. So bands like Black Sabbath or the Carter Family, the Ramones, or even the White Stripes, they have songs that you could play on an auto harp, no problem. Any country song, probably. But there's music that I love that's far too sophisticated <laughs> to be played on an auto harp. I've never been able to figure out how, but I'd love to, but I just don't know how. Like Led Zeppelin or Kraftwerk or the B-52s. I mean, love that music, but it can't be played on an auto harp, so I don't. A lot of pop music is really easy to play, like the Spice Girls or... Um, I've actually recently did a song by a, a solo song by one of the Spice Girls. So, mm. you know, that kind of like super poppy music is also a lot of times just a few simple chords. So it's easy to play. And of course, all punk rock is just like three chords. So <laughs> easy. <laughs> and folks, you heard earlier that Duncan made a reference to the Carter family. And now since he just mentioned them again, I can't not mention if you never heard my interview last October, episode 453 with Ann Buckle, we had recorded that live on location at the Pensacola Beach Songwriters Festival. She grew up a part of the Carter family. She's a cousin of June Carter Cash, and we talked about that in addition to a lot of other things. But I'm going to put a link on the show page for Duncan's episode on nhte.net to episode 453 with Ann Buckle, so you can go back and hear that conversation we were talking, Duncan, about influences. One of your influences is sacred harp shape note music. What is that? That is music that was originally written in England and then came to the United States. And teachers from New England were able to teach music in the churches because they had shapes. So each note had a name. It was originally seven uh, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. But then they changed it because there was a, there's some musical theory behind it, but you really only need four. So they have fa, sol, la, fa, sol, la, mi, fa. That's the eight, you know, the eighths, or if you will, the eight notes in a given key. And so then that music came down to the south and there it took off. And this was in the 1800s. Mm. They've been singing it ever since. They still sing it. If you go to a primitive Baptist church, even in Florida, you'd probably find one. They sing it and they sing it loud. They say loud is good. They say if you hear your neighbor singing off key, it means you're not singing loud enough. <laughs> <laughs> so it really taught me music. I mean, I finally learned how to read limited, but I can read music and um, I can really sing it. I mean, I know a lot of those songs by heart now because I went to so many conventions and regional singings and sang in churches in Alabama. And it taught me harmony, of course, because it's, it's six parts, really. It's You sit in a square and there's just four parts, tenor, bass, treble, and alto. But the treble and the tenor actually sing in two different octaves because the women sing one octave above the men usually some men can reach up to the higher octave but i'm not one of them <laughs> so i actually started out as a treble which is interesting because they don't sing the melody the melody is found in tenor so while my voice was still high enough i sang treble and then i had to drop down to tenor and once i was in tenor that's when i learned all the tunes and the actual melody but i already knew the high parts so i understood the difference between, you know, like, and how you can hear another 
note, but not have to follow it. I used to follow notes because I didn't, I would just sing along, but then I learned how to sing with my own voice. I wish I had a, an example that was um, not copyrighted and that you could play, but there, <laughs> um, I do have like a, a YouTube video of someone singing a song for me because I was, I think I was sick that day and I couldn't sing. So they sang one of my favorite songs um, and that's got to be copyright free. So I could probably send you a link to that to put up on the website. Please do. It's like a, okay, I will. Please do. And folks, I'll include that link as well on the show page for Duncan's episode on nhte.net. And for both Duncan's benefit audience and yours, because of what he's talking about, episode 333, I interviewed Terry Barber. He is a countertenor and very, very accomplished, internationally acclaimed vocalist, actor, songwriter, producer. He's a voting member of the Grammys. And... Duncan, I know you'd be interested in listening to that interview and audience as well. And ironically, Terry Barber and Ann Buckle, the two episodes I'm going to put links to, I've had the pleasure of seeing both of them perform live. So some nice twists that this interview is taking. I am joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Los Angeles by musician, filmmaker, writer, and podcaster Duncan McLeod. Visit his official website at DuncanWritesBooks.com. I will have a link to that on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. On his website, you will see links to engage with Duncan on both Facebook and Twitter, as well as an opportunity to get a free copy of one of his books when you simply sign up for his e-newsletter. Be sure to check out his author page on Amazon. Coming up, we'll be talking about all the books he has written, including a new one that's on the way. Meanwhile, one week ago, the U.S. Surgeon General said that isolation and loneliness are an epidemic as damaging to Americans' individual and public health as smoking and obesity. Yeesh. Folks, listen. You don't have to feel like you're alone and have no one to talk to. You hear me every week on this show telling you about the OWL app and how you can call me on there. Heck, remember back on episode 468 when I interviewed Daniel Mock. I met him through the OWL app. If you liked that interview, call Daniel on the OWL app, a fellow podcasting friend of mine who is big into real estate down in Key West, just downloaded and set himself up on the OWL app because of me telling him about it. Call him on there. His name is Tyler Sheff. There are some really great conversations happening on there. Get on my podcast website, nhte.net, Tap or click any of the places on there where it says home and then dig into the article titled help now a phone um, app call away. I've got information in that article for you about OWL plus links to get it from the App Store or Google Play and an invitation code, which is a required field when you set it up on your phone. Then call me on there and let's chat. Duncan, let's transition from music into film and writing. There is a quote mistakenly attributed to Mark Twain. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. What does that quote mean to you? Well, it it's pretty powerful. I mean, yes, the day you're born, you can't do anything about that. But one day you're going to realize why you were born, at least if you actualize in your lifetime. right? So... Music was the first time when I, not the time when my father was singing, but rather when I found music again and I learned how to play the auto harp and I got up on stage for the first time 
And there's actually a recording of that. I have a link to it that I sent you. So the first time Nettie and I and MJ got up on stage, it was this little underground club in West Hollywood. And there were just like maybe 40 people in the audience. And they were screaming and going, woo, you know, as we were playing. They, And at the time it was happening, I thought they were making fun of us because we were so new and we didn't know what we were doing. But then we got the cassette and we heard it and we were going, oh my God, they were serious. We were really good. And like the very next day, I got a call from a casting agent who happened to have been in the audience and she wanted us to audition for a film. Whoa. <laughs> and that was such a validation of like, oh, I'm on the right path. Wow. You know, I'm on a good path. Wow. How uh, cool we didn't get that? the part. It but doesn't matter. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the victory was getting the call, yeah, right? It, yeah. You don't know. Getting the part, that's, you know, that's a long shot in Hollywood. But it was so fun and cool. And that's an example of like when you know that you're on that path, that you're finding out why you're here. Mm. It happened with film when I was um, laid off from my job and I was just kind of floundering and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I met this friend who was into Mexican wrestling and she said to me, hey, I have to go to a school for luchadors down in Anaheim. Do you want to come? And I was like, let me get my camera. <laughs> and I went down with her and I just started interviewing these wrestlers and I was so taken with it all. It was so interesting because Mexican wrestling is so much more, well, I want to say graceful than U.S. wrestling. You know, like U.S. wrestlers is about being heavy and, you know, knocking people down and, ugh. but Mexican wrestling is high flying. There's lots of acrobatics and it's very cinematic and beautiful. So as I started making that film, just more and more things piled on it would take a long time to tell you all of them, but there was like a, a new show coming out called Lucha Vavoom that my friend Liz was putting on. And I was there at the very beginning. It's still going. It's been like 20 years and mm. it's this huge event that happens a few times a year in LA and it travels to Vegas and San Francisco. So it's basically a combination of Lucha and burlesque and it's really great. And I was there right at the very first one. So it sounds like you're saying that these creative outlets, right, getting up on stage and performing and the crowd is cheering, getting the call from the casting director, going down and shooting this film about Mexican wrestling. It sounds like you're saying all of those were kind of mileposts for you getting back to that quote in terms of finding out why. Exactly. Right. Because you were finding like I was meant for all these creative pursuits that I'm getting into. Yeah. Exactly. It, and it's like when the path opens up, everything gets easy for a while. There's still huge hurdles to overcome for you to be successful with your endeavor. But the road itself is just wide open and people come into your life. And, you know, I just met so many people while I was making that film and had such an interesting experience. And, um, you know, it ended up being a really good story. It was about a uh, one luchador who was having trouble. He was, you know, in a gang and he was trying to get out of it and he was just having such a struggle. And that's why I called the film La Lucha, The Struggle. Um, it's not really in print anymore, but you can still find it on eBay. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, I sold it to Image Entertainment and it's, it did well. But filmmaking isn't for the poor and I was poor. So I was doing, the, it's a miracle that that film got made. There's just so many expenses 
related to it. And, um, I got sued by somebody Whoa! and I, so almost all the money that I made off the film went to paying a lawyer to defend me. And it was a frivolous lawsuit. They would Whoa. have never won, but you still need a lawyer, right? Cause I had insurance <sighs> and the insurance. Made... <laughs> so once that happened, I got discouraged and said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to make another film. I think I'm done with that. Mm. I'll let Morgan make the documentaries, you know? And of course he does wow. um, really great work. Morgan Aker. Uh, and then I moved on to writing and that's when I found this whole new voice that I had been suppressing for most of my life, uh, ever since I had a, a nervous breakdown or a, there's different names for it, a psychotic episode, you might have to, uh, ask a question or two following up on this, but basically, uh, coming out as gay when I was like 16 was really hard, but it wasn't as hard as coming out as someone living with a mental illness. Mm. Um, and I, it took me 30 years before I finally said, you know what, I'm going to stop hiding it. I'm going to stop being afraid to tell people. And as soon as I started talking about it, I got so much positive feedback. And, wow. and my writing is all about that. There's some, it's memoirs from the time when I went from, you know, being sort of a fairly successful Ivy leaguer to dropping out getting hospitalized, finding drugs, and then having to clean up from that. It was kind of a, a series of books about all of that. Yeah, let me jump in here before you get a little too far ahead, because I, I, I would think, and I'm putting this in the form of a question, but based on what you've said, I would think that the answer is, is yes. If I was to ask you, would you say that you have found your voice? Because you talked about the music, you talked about the filmmaking, now you're starting to go towards writing. But in all that, we were talking about that mistakenly attributed quote that is not from Mark Twain, but you were starting to find out why. I was meant for all these creative pursuits. And so when you realized, okay, filmmaking is not for me anymore, it sounds like you kind of took a personal inventory. You looked at your own personal infrastructure. You did a self-audit, to use a phrase that I really <laughs> like to use. And yeah. I would think it's safe to say that you did find your voice, yes? I did. It turned out it was a series of voices. There was the musical voice, and I still have that. I still sing Sacred Harp. There was the filmmaking voice, which is quieter now, but I still make little films here and there. And then there was writing. And writing is when I finally just realized that this is how I can make the most impact on people in my life is through this writing and now with this podcast. So it's like an audio book of sorts. Uh. Yeah, so it's... Uh, and, you know, the universe kind of conspired recently, and that's another sign I, when things it happened with the film and it's happening now with my writing where I lost my job at the end of the year. And I said, you know what? I don't want to go back to that kind of stuff. I don't want to do data analysis and finance and blah, blah in the entertainment industry. I want to write. So I just declared myself full time writing, wow. even though I'm making, you know, I don't make a lot at it yet. And suddenly, like, I got unemployment. Sure, that helps a little. But then some other money came, like, you know, here and there. I had a, an inheritance and a, some other stuff that I wasn't expecting. And it's allowing me to do exactly what I said I wanted to do, which is write full time. That's awesome because this is exactly like two weeks ago. If you heard my interview that I did out in Anaheim at the NAM show with Alamor, she lives in Miami. She moved to the United States from Colombia with her family when she was 12 years old. She said on that episode two weeks ago 
that she was at a job and her feet were killing her at the end of the day. And she said, if my feet are going to be killing me like this, it should be because I'm in heels on a red carpet and not for (laughs) working at this type of job. And so the next day she put in her two weeks notice. So I'm going a long way to take my hat off to Duncan because a lot of people, and I put this in the newsletter the day that that episode came out, I said a lot of people have a dream about what they like to do. And then there are people that actually act on it. And so Duncan, I love that you kind of just declared, okay, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to declare myself. I am a full-time writer now. Yeah. And boy, did the universe just open up to me, you know, and Mm. so many opportunities. I went to the San Francisco writers conference where I met you and that just energized me so much. And you taught me, how to start a podcast. You probably, you barely, I mean, you didn't get into any of the technical stuff at all, but (laughs) (laughs) the collaboration I did with Owen taught me how to use GarageBand. And then I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about how to put together a podcast. And I used the platform that you use to, to sort of put it all together. The syndication platform. Yeah. Libsyn uh, is where I put my podcast on and I did a practice podcast with a bunch of writing that I do that I can't really talk about here. It's, you know, erotica, but that was my practice podcast where I kind of got up to speed and realized, Oh, you can hear yourself clearing your throat. You can, you can hear it when you take a deep breath and, you know, sort of the things that I needed to be aware of. And when I was ready, I started this new podcast, which is my latest book, which is sort of mostly written already. So I can get started on it now. Okay, I do want to back up to something that you started to touch on, especially since we are in the month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. Yeah. Talk to me about what happened to you. Well, um, I came unglued. Um, I was under a lot of stress. I lost my job, and I was 19, and I didn't know where my next dollar was coming from. And it just suddenly one day... I thought I'd figured everything out. There was this uh, this moment where my mind just kind of snapped and then it just kept going and it was like, oh, I'm going to be abducted by aliens. And um, I ended up getting arrested because I was trespassing and they 5150'd me, which is a California word, I think. It means transferred from jail to the mental hospital. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time there and that's where I first got exposed to the stigma of mental illness. I mm. felt de- deeply ashamed, which is self-stigma. And then the doctors wouldn't listen to me because I, most of the time I was rambling and didn't make sense. But sometimes I was saying things that mattered, like uh, this medication is making me go blind. And they're like, yeah, sure. Mm. Um, but then eventually when I started bumping into things, they realized I wasn't lying. Wow. Um, but yeah, so that stigma was kind of a lifelong thing. And that's what I talk about finding a a new voice coming out, not just as gay, but also as someone living with a mental health issue. Another form of stigma that we see a lot is in the media where hospitalization is depicted as like, it's always such a cliche. There's people screaming or, you know, I don't know, not flinging poo exactly, but you know, like it just, you, you go into a mental hospital in a horror film and it's, such a stupid characterization Mm. of a hospital. Um, What a hospital really is, is a bunch of people who are struggling to feel well, you know, they're, they're not screaming at each other. I mean, it happens, but it's, that's not what it's about. It's, it's very quiet most of the time. And, 
you know, people are on these heavy drugs and they can't really make conversation even. And uh, back then they used to give you a tray full of tobacco. So everyone's there rolling up cigarettes and smoking mm. and you, you won't see that now, I don't think, but <laughs> that was what we did. And then um, I recently saw a film that I thought did an excellent job of portraying the hospital. It was called The Silent Twins by, I'm going to butcher her name, by Agnieszka Smoczynska, uh, a Polish filmmaker. But it was about these two girls who were twins who developed their own language and just stopped talking. Like they only talked to each other and nobody else mm. for a long time. And they ended up being hospitalized because people couldn't deal with it. But when she showed the hospital, it was quiet. And it was the way that I remember the hospital being. And mm. I was so grateful to her. I wrote her on Instagram and thanked her. And she wrote me back and said, oh, that means a lot to me. Mm, <laughs> so, nice. nice. yeah, I, I think it's important that we talk about stigma and kind of the flip side of stigma is called ableism where people who haven't experienced mental illness have a lot of preconceived notions about what it is. And it's kind of a form of bigotry where, you know, you can get fired from a job if they think you're mentally ill in some cases. They're not supposed to do that, but mm. they, they'll they put you on a short list, if you will. And that happened to me um, and a friend. We were wow. both working at the same place and we realized that we were both, you know, surviving or whatever the word is, living with mental illness. Mm. And um, two years to the day when she had taken a break, a mental health break, they fired her. And the same thing happened to me. I had to take a break to have my medication adjusted. And two years to the day later, they fired me. Wow. So wow. It, I was like, mm, you know, this is bad. This is, uh, it's important to just come out and be who you are. Because I didn't want to work for a company that would do that to me. Exactly, so. exactly. And I want to jump in here because... It is important that we're talking about all of this, especially because, audience, you heard Duncan start off by saying, yeah, I just declared myself a writer. I decided I'm going to quit my job, and this is what I'm going to do full time. And fortunately, some things panned out here and there, and he mentioned an inheritance. And I know you're sitting there thinking, well, I would love to do that, but I can't quit my job, and things wouldn't go my way. I wouldn't get an inheritance. The fact of the matter is, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for him. He didn't just decide... I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to be a full-time writer. And it was just, you know, flowers every day and smiley faces. He's just not getting into some of the challenges that he faced. But it's important that you understand that he did have mental challenges, mental health challenges. And it's so cliched, but I know that it really is true. And I know I can speak for Duncan, even though we, he and I don't know each other that well. But if something that he said helps one person out there, people say this all the time, but it's true. And it's important that Duncan talks about everything that he's talking about so that people realize the reality of what's going on around them that they might not be aware of. And if something that you hear helps you or if it helps someone that you know that you pass the information along to or you tell them, listen to this interview or get in touch with Duncan, I know that means a lot to him if he's able to help one person because of the help that he was able to get. I do want to give him an opportunity also, though, because, Duncan, we have talked around some of your writing here and there. And I mentioned back in the intro that you published five memoirs and a sixth is on its way. Yeah. And since I also mentioned that your website is DuncanWritesBooks.com, I want to give you a chance to tell us about that persona and those projects. Okay. Well, um, the first four books that I wrote were, a, they're all sequential 
5150 is about my hospitalization. Half is about time I spent in a halfway house. Mexico, which is spelled weird, M3X1 parenthesis zero. Mexico is about me escaping the mental health system and taking a train into the heart of Mexico, which happened. And then a quarter is about me coming back from Mexico and getting addicted to drugs and having to get clean. And that was the end of the cycle for me because after that, my life got pretty good. And it's really when my life was bad that I felt was more interesting for people. I may figure out a way to write beyond that. Mm. Um, I wrote a prequel where I was in New York and you sort of see the beginnings of me falling apart. But 5150 is the book where it just really just goes into a really unreliable narration of what was happening to me. (laughs) I remember flying. I remember aliens. You know, it's none of it's what happened, but it's what I thought was happening. And so what is this sixth one that's on its way? Um, Okay. So those those five books I mentioned, the character was named Ethan. Um, I was too ashamed to be Duncan in those books. So the sixth book is a rewriting of the books with some commentary about what's really going on, but it's also Duncan is the main character and some of my other friends who were willing to be, I anonymized everybody because I thought it was so shameful to be a part of a book about mental illness. Mm. That's, that's stigma, man. That's what I'm learning to fight now. And by being more and more honest about it, I'm just getting so much positive feedback from my readers. And I have a friend from childhood who has a, a daughter who's struggling with schizophrenia and she read my book and it just changed her life. She was able Mm. to help her daughter because of things that she read in that book. So that's great. That's how I know I'm doing the right thing. We've covered a lot in this episode. As I mentioned, when I first brought you on, you clearly wear a lot of hats. So I wonder what are you focused on now? I am focused on the book that I'm writing now, which is called when everything cracks and the podcast that accompanies it. I've got seven episodes, seven chapters recorded so far, and they come out every week. So the first two chapters are already out there. And I'm putting together my own publishing company because some of the books I write have been banned on Amazon, not these books. It's some other stuff that, like I said, I probably shouldn't talk about on this podcast. But those books that were banned, I thought, you know what, I just need to start my own publishing company because, you know, voices shouldn't be silenced like that. So when you mention when everything cracks, is that the one that's number six or is that different? That's the number six. Okay. Um, and okay. there'll probably be a rewritten version of the others where it's more honest and more, there's a lot of annotations that'll explain what was true and what wasn't because that's whether it was true or not, it was true for me at that moment. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I'm writing in the moment, but it would be good for people to know. Yeah, there wasn't really an imaginary person in this instance. It was just a good storytelling device or yeah. that kind of thing. Wow. Wow. Oh, this has been a very, <laughs> very, very rich episode, very full of lots of Good insights, good storytelling, a lot of twists and turns, just like just so you can tell that, that Duncan's a good storyteller. We're going to come all the way full circle now and go back to music. We're going to close 
with another song by The Acres called Snake Handler. Duncan, before I let you go and I play that track, share with the audience all about this one, if you would, please. Okay, my first introduction to snake handling was in college when we saw a film called The Holy Ghost People. It's about people in the Holiness Pentecostal Church in rural Kentucky, Alabama, Tennessee, and they... There's, I meant to write it down, but there's a quote in the Bible that if you take up serpents and they, and you won't be harmed, essentially. It's, uh, it's supposed to be about faith. And if you have faith, then when the poisonous snakes bite you, you won't die. So a book got written about a true story of a, essentially a murder that happened in one of those churches. It's called Salvation on Sand Mountain. And I was reading the review of that in the LA times. And I said, this would be a good song. So mm. I um, went on a road trip for Nettie to get a better banjo Cause the one she had was kind of falling apart. And on that trip, we decided to write that song together. And um, it's about faith and also about jealousy. And, you know, there was a, a trial that happened in sand mountain two trials one was the trial that the wife underwent he thought she was unfaithful and he made her put her hand in the serpent box uh it's supposed to be like, it's kind of like a witch hunt like you know if if you're faithful to me then you won't die but she died and so then there was a trial for murder that came after that hmm. and so the song is about that it's it's a pretty intense song but it's was supposed to be funny, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, I thought snake handling was so silly, but since I've become a little more serious about, I don't know, religion, my relationship with Christ, that kind of thing, I feel like the song really is a powerful and um, conflicted song. So mm. I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Great, great insight. Good storytelling on on that song as well as as i said throughout this whole episode it's been so great having you on the show duncan thank you so much for making time to be on now here this entertainment best of luck with the new book and i'm going to say with the new podcast even though you're seven episodes in but it's been great having you on now here this entertainment my friend thank you so much for being here oh thank you for having me bruce my pleasure my pleasure and with that i will wrap up another new episode of now here this entertainment my sincere thanks to musician, filmmaker, writer, and podcaster Duncan McLeod, do visit his official website at DuncanWritesBooks.com. Again, I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. Once you land on his website, be sure to look for the Facebook and Twitter icons to engage with Duncan through both of those platforms. For that matter, tell Duncan that you heard him on Now Hear This Entertainment on his website, there is a link to get to his link tree, which, among other entries, has a link to his author page on Amazon. Head there so you can see the five books that he has put out and to purchase the one or more of those that speaks to you. And then look, of course, for the new book that's on the way. Look for Duncan's podcast called When Everything Cracks and keep up with him online as we get close to that new slash sixth book that you heard him say will be coming out. I do truly hope that you like this show, that you're enjoying what I'm doing every week on the Now Hear This Entertainment podcast. If you've made it all the way to the end, thanks for having stuck with Duncan and I, and I'm going to assume that that means that you do like the podcast. You can take action to let me know that you appreciate the work that I do to keep making this show happen every week, every month, 
more than nine years without missing once by going on my podcast website, nhte.net, and then using the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo that you will see there. This is not a sponsor. It's not affiliated with any brand or chain. It's just a fun way for you to send your support, your thanks to me, including a note that I will see when you utilize that option. You can also just head directly to buymeacoffee.com slash Bruce W. That's going to do it for episode 484. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with another song by The Acres. This is the one Duncan just talked about. It's called Snake Handler. Mary, Mary, won't you come right quick? I want to show you an amazing trick. I'm going to swallow this here strict nine. Don't you worry, gonna be just fine. Willie, Willie, you are so brave to trust the Lord, your soul to save. I know you feel it, I feel it too. Our Savior's love is good and true. Take up serpents, speak in tongues. Sing Hosanna till the morning comes. If you don't have enough faith in God, you wind up buried in the cold hard sod. Bachelor Jasper Quinn Is it true you've been Sinning with him I was with him I won't deny But let me tell you The reason why He gave me a ride from the general store Just being neighborly Nothing more Take a serpent Speak in tongues Sing Hosanna till the morning comes If you don't have enough Faith in God Why not bury Place your arm in the serpent box and incur no harm. Lord will protect you if you're faithful to me, but if you're not, you're gonna be sorry. Willie, Willie, I'm quite afeard. Don't you know that I love you, dear? All these years, if you don't trust me, and bury me under the willow tree. Take up serpents, speak in tongues, sing Hosanna till the morning comes. If you don't have enough faith in God, you wind up buried in the cold hard sod. The snakes don't lie like lovers do, and so the Lord has punished you. I can't believe that this is the end. The wound is too deep for us to mend. Willie, Willie, I'm fading fast. You thought me false, so I died to spare. Take up serpents, speak in tongues. Sing Hosanna till the morning comes. If you don't have enough faith in God, you wind up buried in the 